Oh, hello. It's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term Show, we are going to talk about the Canadian local real estate market update. And when I say Canadian, I don't even really mean Canadian. What I mean is the greater Toronto area and the Golden Horseshoe. We're going to focus on that area. We're going to dive into some of the condo market. And I never really thought we'd talk about the condo market on this episode as much as we did, but we did. And I need to share something. The first seven minutes or so of this episode, Nick, his audio is all messed up and The reason is we had a couple extra mics set up because we just did a few podcasts with four people here and he was talking to a mic that I did not have active and his audio was being picked up for the first seven minutes by a mic that was about four or five feet away from him. (laughs) So we're going to try and play with his audio. So hopefully when you're hearing it, it's a bit better than what it sounded like when we recorded, but it's not perfect. And then after about seven minutes or so, we get him onto the right mic. So... When some of you might hear when I ask, Nick, can you hear me? Obviously, with all our joking around on if you can actually hear me or not, we are still not perfect at doing podcasts by any means. So that was a big mess up. Um, but we kept that seven minutes. We'll play around with the, uh, the decibel level there, and hopefully we have that fixed for you when you're listening. But if it's not perfect, it gets much better after the seven-minute mark. So if you're listening to this, that's what's going on there. But we do dive into the real estate market. And, and if you told me 10 years ago, the property prices would be where they are today. And we had some pretty aggressive forecasts in you know internally for some of this stuff because of the low interest rates. We were convinced even even though everyone told us in 2010 rates would go up, you know, everyone said, well, rates can't stay down forever. They can't stay this low forever. We were told that like a million times. And we thought just mathematically with the amount of debt and with what the central banks wanted to do with the banking system, which is kind of flush new activity into it, they were just going to keep low rates long for low for too long, which is basically what they did. And what it's done is it's basically doubled property prices right around the GTA and Golden Horseshoe. So on this episode, we kind of just have a few thought experiments in what happens if rates go even lower? What happens if the debt flushed in the system goes even at a higher pace? What happens if the population increases at a higher pace? What the heck are property prices going to look like over the next 10 years? And remember, we're not saying any of this is actually right or good. We're just saying it is what it is. This is what's happening. We need to be aware of it and at least analyze it so we can you know, not be caught off guard by it if it does continue to go at this pace or perhaps even faster. Who knows? And if you're just listening to us for the first time, know in this discussion that we don't believe real estate just goes up forever. We have a long history in this thing and we're very aware that it can go up and down. So that's what we discuss on this episode. And stay tuned. We're going to have a global kind of more of a macroeconomic update for you soon. Nick and I have to carve out some time to record that. We'll release that hopefully within the next week um, where we'll talk about the big picture, global macroeconomic stuff. We love talking about that stuff as well. So we'll be releasing that shortly. Stay tuned for that. And if you are listening to this and you want to get involved in the local real estate market craziness that we're all playing in and you're not sure where to start, well, maybe you should check out the Rockstar Inner Circle. And the reason you might want to check that out is we have a whole slew of benefits when you join the Rockstar Inner Circle and you can check them all out at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. One of the things I'm most proud about is you are assigned to one of the coaches here on our team and we have an amazing group of people who are the Rockstar coaches. All of them are investors themselves. All of them have millions and millions of dollars, you know, some of them hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars experience in the real estate market. 
and they will sit down with you, map out your short-term objectives, your long-term goals, and come up with a plan and try to work that plan as best as humanly possible with you right on the streets side by side. That is the thing we are most proud about. Recently, over the last few weeks, we had a bunch of them on the podcast. JP Gulbis has been on. Nadim Ahmed was recently on. Mike DeZorma, we just recorded an audio with him. He just came out with a new book. So he's one of the rock star coaches who has a brand new book called Wealth Won't Wait. We sit down with him and talk about that. Wait till you hear some of his story on that episode. So we're just really proud. And that's just a small sample of some of the great coaches we have here at Rockstar. So that's who you're working with here at Rockstar. We sit down and do an initial goal setting consultation with you. We have a bunch of classes that you get as a member, including everything from knowing your landlord rights and protecting yourself against any sort of claims, using corporations effectively for tax planning purposes, managing your real estate tax planning personally, if you're going to hold property personally, a Canadian mortgage finance class, a rockstar e-commerce class by two amazing rockstar inner circle members who talk about that. We have an account, uh, sorry, a legal second suite class, a Toronto pre-construction class, a property management class, a student rental investing class, an investing through joint venture class, and more. So we have a bunch of classes all going on here. We have a bunch of agreements and contracts on the member-only website. We have a 12-page monthly newsletter that goes out to all Rockstar Inner Circle members, and that's where members share their stories. So if you're thinking, well, geez, I don't really think I can do this real estate investing thing, and you open this newsletter, and you're like, holy smokes, look what these people are doing. If they're doing it, I can do it. That's why we have this newsletter where we're all sharing what we're doing in the newsletter and sending it out to all of us so we can all learn from each other. We also have a Rockstar Inner Circle exclusive podcast for members only called the Inner Circle Podcast. We just recently rebranded it to that. And that, uh, that, that goes out once a month to members. We have bigger events three times a year that are now virtual. We did the last one with a big uh, video wall, which was a ton of fun. And there's more benefits. You can check them all out at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. That's enough for the intro, I think. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, we are live, and we're gonna. I'm here with my little brother Nicholas Carazza, and uh, we're gonna talk about the local market and what we're seeing in the real estate market, and how the real, Canadian real estate market seems to keep chugging along. I guess the Toronto market. We can talk about Toronto condos. What? Actually, we had Sasha on just a little while ago on the podcast touched here. Condos. Touched yeah. on condos. And uh, and not the Canadian market. I mean, more locally around here too. Sorry. Okay, so GTA, GTA and Golden Horseshoe. Yeah, yeah, more or less. That's what we're seeing on the streets. So walk us through it. Some you break down the trends into like you do a pretty nice job of talking about land prices, immigration and migration, housing supply. Is is our rental still profitable? So is that the route we're gonna take here? No, that's okay. not this time. Because we were looking at that stuff before COVID hit and then COVID hit and kind of threw everything up in the air and kind of just really took all that stuff and threw it out the window. And it all still matters, but I think if we're looking at more because a lot of the people right now are like I don't understand what's going on how can the real estate market be where, it's, where it is and like so active with, with prices you know average prices increasing and that type of stuff in in a pandemic and employment's up and half the economy shut down and they keep shutting other things you know opening things up and shutting them down and it's a valid point like how can they it makes no sense <laughs> and it makes no sense to us too so um uh, but I guess what we what we 
seen is that what's been happening here is really what's still playing out it's not uh, it, the, the real market is not being impacted by what's happened right now in the most recent past it's what's playing out is, is what's happened over the last you know let's say 10 years those trends that have happened over the last 10 years and we've t- talked about it here before that's what we're still seeing playing out today now now some trends have kind of shifted and changed and some have been maybe amplified a little bit because of the, the whole covid situation but that's really what's what's coming what we're seeing kind of come to mind and when, when we mentioned that the first thing that we've been kind of screaming from the rooftops for a while is, is is population growth and immigration right and i know a lot of people were concerned about immigration numbers um this year specifically because of the pandemic and they're down 100 percent. the latest ones that we saw the latest ones that i was able to grab from the uh from it was a government candle website i believe um it looked like they're, it looked, it, they're shaping up to be, looks like about 200,000 um, so far this year, this calendar year. But what's interesting is last year, because there was such a demand for immigration, the first three quarters uh, of, sorry, the last two quarters of last year and the first quarter of this year, those three quarters, then even though with the drop from June to um, some, from uh, April to June, the, the immigration numbers are, are really, really up. So the net immigration numbers over... What do you that, mean they're really up? They're really up this year? Over that period are, if, if uh, I have them here, it's about 100... And, uh, the net immigration was 118,000 into um, Ontario, right? So they're up from that period of time. So from July 1st of last year to June 30th of this year, they are actually up year over year. So the, the overall calendar year is going to, go, going to go down, but in Ontario, the immigration numbers are up, up to the end of June. So even though they... they so from June to the rest of the year, we're anticipating it's not going to match last yeah, year, so and, it'll be on a calendar year basis, it'll be down. Yeah, and Mar- and from March to June, it was down as well, right? And the reason I'm sharing these numbers, because I don't know what can, can like I, I think it's, it's, cal- it's calendar, but it's like from a stats can numbers, they were looking at these numbers as a fiscal year. So I don't know if they're tracking immigration numbers differently or something, but that's why I was confused because they were looking at the, the the first three quarters of the fiscal year, which was the last two quarters of last year and the beginning of this year, and that's why they're looking at those numbers. So they're actually up. It's 118,000. So when we see that type of thing, even though the immigration numbers are going to be lower calendar year, we're seeing the impact of this housing shortage that we had over a period of time, right? So this 10-year you know, or, or longer, this pent-up demand that we've had, not pent-up demand for people sitting in their house because... They're scared during the pandemic. Uh, we're talking pent-up demand from the lack of availability of housing over the over a decade and easy money policies and, immig- and strong immigration policies. That's where we're seeing the pent-up demand. I think where some people will ask us, like, well, okay, Nick, you know, so where are those people living right now? Then you're telling me there's a housing crisis and for 10 years there's been a shortage, depending on if you use Ontario numbers or GTA numbers, there's been a shortage of 14,000 homes a, a year in the GTA or however we're going to define it because the numbers are always... A little, a little crazier. So over ten years, we have this shortage. We were sitting on a possible shortage of like one hundred and forty thousand homes. Is that what the numbers we ran? Is that what it worked out? Yeah, in the GTA, not like Ontario based, but like GTA. fifty thousand family formations in the GTA, and then about thirty six thousand yeah. housing starts in the GTA. That's a shortage of fourteen thousand homes a year times ten, the last ten years. So we're sitting on a shortage of like one hundred and forty thousand homes, right? 
So let me just think though, what's the po- the population of Oakville right now is um, hundred and like ninety thousand. Average uh, family unit is like two point two. So that's how many homes? Let, let's say in Oakville there's eighty thousand homes, or ninety thousand homes, whatever. And 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 what did I say? We're short one hundred and forty. So we're short. We're short an Oakville and a half. We're short a city and a half in Ontario. So we need another city and a half of homes. Well, people are living with each other. So like like someone in our team, when they, they immigrated here, they were living with family for a couple of years, yes. right? That, you know, or they're renting and that doesn't, that doesn't count, you know, when it comes to home ownership numbers and that type of thing. So it's a number of different things. Or there's roommates, people are living together. Or what also happened is we had, a, starting in about 2015, we had a big influx in non-permanent residents coming in. So that went into like student housing and, and, and that type of thing too. So it's not people looking for a home, but they're looking for a room in a home and you're getting five, six people or more into some of these properties and that's where they're actually living. And those numbers were quite big. I mean, I think uh, up to last year, it looks like these, these numbers here were, what were the, locally, I don't have them in front of me, but they were like 60,000, 80,000. I thought you said it was like 82,000. You're talking about foreign students. Yeah. I thought it was like 82,000. So I thought something like that. So, but, but I mean, those numbers are, are high and that's what's been driving this, this market. And those numbers dropped dramatically as well. But what's Do you think that 82,000 number, was that a Canada-wide number? Or was that an Ontario-wide number? I'd have to, I'd have yeah, to okay. visit to look them up. Okay, but it was tens of thousands of foreign students in this country that need places I think to it live. it was Canada-wide, that okay. number. Okay. But although a, a good majority of them were coming here, uh, when I say here, I mean Ontario in general is when we looked at those numbers. So that's kind of what we're seeing. So we're seeing the headlines about the, the slower immigration numbers, which are absolutely 100% true. Because of the pandemic, the, the immigration numbers are slower, and they've slowed since really like mid-March or the beginning of April. Immigration is still occurring. People are still coming in, which a lot of people don't realize. They think the borders are absolutely closed, and that's not the case. There's, there's planes flying, landing up Houston every single day, and the planes are full. There's not as many flights coming in, but there's like full plane loads of people coming in on a regular basis. And so the, the number might end up going down from, you know, it, it was supposed to be, you know, I think the, the goal was what, 340 this year, 341 or something like that. So it might be right around the 200,000 person mark, but what we're seeing is that like the Canadian government has already come out and they've announced their numbers for next year and their numbers are far greater than what they've initially anticipated for 2021. So they're now aiming for 400,000 uh, immigrants coming into the country next year versus the mid 300 range and that's what's going to change things a lot because so, so they can turn this tab up and down and they want the immigration so they can kind of adjust this accordingly so because we had a slow year yeah that you know we, we, we we're going to see a little bit of that that's going to impact some markets but it doesn't on the population growth front it's going to be a marginal impact let's face it the interesting thing will be because they came out with the 2021 um announcement of 401,000 was i think the target for 2021 i like how they added the one yeah i know 401 401,000 but then it's going to be um you know 410 and then 420 or whatever it is actually i have it right here we can kind of take a look at it um 401 in 2021 is the target 2022 is 411 and 2023 is 421 so the interesting thing on that is that in the, over the last few years we always overshoot and i don't even know if we can overshoot like maybe we can't even hit the new 400,000 target with all the covid stuff that's going on like maybe we're just not going to but it, let's assume we can because in 2021 some travel eases up some people can print off some of their 
some of the documents that they need in their home country to get here. Because as crazy as it sounds, Nick, we've both heard of people who are in other countries who have acceptance into Canada, but can't get to the right office in the country they are in currently to print off the official documentation to get here to Canada. Yeah, we've heard that there's a backlog of people just now waiting to come that are, like you said, they're approved. And and when things kind of open up, there's going to be a little bit of a rush you know, to, to kind of take them up on, on what they're approved. So for, if we right? hit four, if we do hit 400,000 and let's say there's a backlog of a hundred thousand and look, so now it, are we looking at 500,000 next year? No, I mean, I don't know if they include that. Like I, I have no idea because maybe they take the, the 50,000 so. extra that but didn't come I in today. I don't think so because those people are already approved. Those yeah. people are approved on the previous immigration target. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see, but either way, it looks like, like all signs are pointing towards this trend, not disappearing. You know, and I don't mean even not disappearing, like it's likely going to increase. increase. But the big thing that happened in 2015 was the non-permanent residents. That's one thing that's not really kind of accounted for anywhere and that really pushed up uh, market prices in a lot of different areas. And if you look at, you know, we, we pulled up the graphs for a, a presentation that we did and we, we looked at market prices from, you know, Barrie and Toronto and, and, and Cambridge and Kitchener and those types of places. And from 2015 onwards, what we, we did was we, um, w- what you saw was just the, the, the escalation in price increases uh, strengthened. And that's that was kind of it's interesting that that was a direct correlation to the when the population numbers jumped even further because of these non-permanent residents. So I don't know, like, is that what caused it? I mean, there's other factors as well, 100 percent. But it's just very interesting that that's when things really started picking up. Right. Um, So so I think that's where. Some people are missing the mark when they're talking about the real estate market right now because they're looking at the real estate market thinking, I don't get it. The real estate market should be reacting to exactly what's happening in the economy and with the pandemic right now. So like if the pandemic hits, the market should react immediately. Whereas I think the real estate market, there's a lagging effect. So if this pandemic drags on and and these employment numbers and the economic downturn drag on for a prolonged period of time, of course, it's going to impact the market greater than it's impacted impacted it so far but it it because of the kind of foundation that was in place already and the, there was the shortage of supply versus the demand that's what's been driving things up to this point so far yeah totally agree and then and uh and incomes really have because of all the money that's been flushed into the system incomes really haven't taken a hit and and right were you gonna say something there no. and then and then um interest rates dropped a point and a half like no one's really kind of talking. No, so if you, if you, and, and the, there's been no spring market. So the spring market, we, we released a report. One of the first things that we did early on, remember when, when the pandemic hit, this was the end of March. I was like, we looked at it. We're like, when is this going to, when was like, can we get any information based on a time like this? And what we, what we went back and looked at is we looked at the SARS period, which was nowhere near the same impact as, um, as what COVID had, but we wanted to see what the impact was to the real estate market at the time. And what we noticed based on that was there was about a four to five month downturn in the market. And then when the market started becoming active again, there was a huge year over year jump in um, number of sales, just a huge, it was like, it was like a 65% number um, uh, jump year over year which is not a normal market at all. So we went and looked at that. And then that gave us kind of like an idea of what may be happening with during this COVID shutdown. And we saw it, we saw it play out through the summer. So there was this no spring market. There was this period of a you know, few months where things were really dampened. And then it started that, that demand there then hit in the summer during months when typically there wouldn't be much as much activity. So months like July, August, and September, when we see these year over year sales numbers, like, oh, transactions are, are way up because of this. Well, it's not really a fair comparison 
interesting because you're taking some pent up demand from a period of time that is historically a busy time in the real estate market, so the spring market, and now you're bringing it forward to when less transactions typically happen. So the year over year transaction numbers that get released throughout the summer, they're just really not a good indication of what's truly happening in the market. Even though they look great and they're like super positive and that type of stuff. Well, it's like, you know, how does it really kind of come and, and impact us? Yeah, I, I agree. And I think when you compound these things together, like when you look at population growth in this area, when you look at interest rates that have dropped a point and a half, and then when you look at some of the pent up demand that's kind of existed there when people couldn't really, really weren't moving around a little bit. But then there's something that we talk about, Nick, a lot is that the pull forward demand, meaning that someone might have been planning to move in two years. But then a couple things happen. They see property prices go crazy, right? So instead of saying, hey, I'm going to wait, wait until I move in two years, they're saying, I'm just going to list my pro property for sale now and see what I get. Because property prices are going, I know multiple people who've done that, yeah. who said, hey, I was going to move it, move in two years, but property prices went crazy, so I'm going to raise them, raise them up. Uh, sorry, I'm going to list and see what I can get. Or the alternative of the pull forward demand isn't that. The second kind of thing happening in the pull forward demand is, hey, this really isn't the house that I want to live in. Should we be locked down again? I'm going to buy something else because 100%. I want to move from my smaller square footage house or whatever, or I want a house where my in-laws can live with us together. So if there's a shutdown together and we're seeing a lot of people make those moves that those weren't planned moves, those moves are pulling forward from some future place. And then on top of that, there's actually a third thing on the pull forward demand, whereas people are buying cottages and homes out of the city. I mean, we bought a house out of the city a vacation property out of the city so that we can have another place to go to. So you have, all, and we weren't planning to do that. I was just laughing because I'm like, yeah, we bought it out of like, you know, I don't know. We were drinking some wine. We were drinking wine. It was basically and I, out of boredom. I ran to the sales yeah. office. <laughs> I was going to say we it's were, out of boredom. We were eating lunch. I ran to the sales office and called Nick and said, hey, Nick, I think we should buy this property. I was on and the high ropes with, with my daughter <laughs> and your daughter. I was climbing yeah, no, I in, yeah, in yeah, jung yeah, a yeah. jungle gym I know thing it's ridiculous. And, and I answered my phone and I said, yeah, okay. Because I was just basically like, I'm here. Like, I can't even talk about this. I'm like, do whatever. Yeah, 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 <laughs> so. yeah. Yeah, but, uh, but, but we bought that property. So there's all these facts. So on the pull forward demand, you have people who listed and then just to see what price it would get. If they got a good price, then they had to go find somewhere else. And I know multiple people in that situation who are now renting or looking for a place. Then you had the people who wanted a different place in case were shut down again. They moved. And then you had people who are buying a second home because they want some alternative living ar arrangement should there be kind of lockdowns again. So just to repeat, housing crisis over the last 10 years, we have a shortage. Then interest rates come down 1.5%. And Nick, I just did the math on that. And I'll repeat it in a second. Interest rates come down. Then you have pull forward demand in multiple categories. And then incomes really haven't been affected greatly because there's been SERB payments and there's been all this money flushed into well, the system. 80% of the jobs lost were low income jobs. So the low income jobs, those people generally aren't buying the properties like that, you know, a lot of people are seeing like the three bedroom detached properties. If you're looking for a starter detached home, those people typically aren't shopping for those properties at this point in their life, right? And that's why we're seeing the, the, the demand for those has really kind of hasn't been impacted has actually increased whereas the demand for the starter unit condo right so like the 500 square foot or less condo market that segment of the condo market has been hit the hardest i think their numbers were down 20 percent last i checked i think it was a national post uh graph that they put from probably from a real estate board but though that segment of the condo market was hit the most because there was that those people that with that income 
um, range, their jobs were hit. Whereas a lot of people with higher paid jobs or they work at larger corporations or they have kind of, you know, quote unquote, white collar jobs, maybe not in the service industry, they're, they, 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 the, because of the payroll subsidy, there wasn't as many job losses there, not even close. It, it's the, the number of jobs that were lost in the, in the low income sector this time versus past recessions is multiples of any past recession. It's not even close. I just ran some of the interest rate changes. If you buy a $600,000 home and you put 20% down, if you're lucky enough to be able to put 20% down, you're left with a $480,000 mortgage. A $480,000 mortgage at 3.2%, that was roughly the interest rates pre-pandemic here, would cost you 2360 or 2330 roughly around $2,330 as the mortgage payment. Then after, a few months later, interest rates are immediately dropped to point and a half, and that same $480,000 mortgage goes down to 1963 That's about a 16 or roughly a 16% difference in mortgage payment. Yeah, so all so the now, people that were locked out of the market, all of a sudden... All of a sudden now they have a... Yeah, and their property prices... Sorry, their monthly payments have gone from 2300 to 1963 Yeah, or they, they, they couldn't qualify at all based on the debt ratio at 2300 is what I'm saying. Now, oh, all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, because people that couldn't qualify anything over 2000 or over right, as a monthly payment, now all of a sudden all those people can qualify in the mortgage market. Yeah, and so payments dropped by that much from 23, so like that's a drop of whatever we're gonna rough, we're doing rough numbers here, so it's like 15% drop, and then what have property prices done in the last few months? Yeah. Property prices have shot up yeah. roughly probably by the same amount. To offset that. Yeah, to yeah. offset that. Like you can kind of see the levers being pulled here, interest rates drop, property prices go up, yeah. like it's all this game. I said multiples of the last couple of recessions for low paying jobs, but I'm looking at the numbers here from their stats can and CIBC, and it looks like in past recessions, it was right about 50% of the job losses were what they considered low paying jobs, uh, whereas now it's about 80% this time. So it's not multiples, it's it's decimal place multiples. <laughs> but it's a big jump, like there's, that's a big difference. And that's kind of what we're, that's why the real estate market hasn't been impacted the same way because there's, the government's flooded things with with money, right? Um, so that's that's kind of like on the demand side, we've seen that type of stuff. And that's why we've seen these, these the, the consistent prices increases for years and why we're still seeing it today because we have to let this backlog of of this kind of these these fundamentals that are in place kind of play out a little bit and then what whatever's going to happen with the pandemic we're still yet to see that that's really i think although we're seeing some impact of that we're going to see um more of more of that depending on how long this how prolonged this stuff goes on and where we're seeing some of that stuff is like the condo market Right, so the condo market, and the reason why it's not necessarily it, it, it is some some pandemic driven stuff. So, like we talked about, just the income component, but it was more a supply shock that happened there. Whereas a bunch of people just just like at a time when we were getting uh, an increasing number year over year number of, of completions in the, that condo market, then we had a, a huge amount of supply jump on the market as well from investors that wanted out or people that were Airbnb people that were now looking for long term rentals or they wanted out. You know what I mean? So it just really changed the dynamics very quickly, um, and it, it wasn't like normal market forces that kind of that that caused that. It was more the government saying. Airbnbs are disallowed or tourism basically dropping to zero because of the pandemic. And now all of a sudden you have people looking and see, wondering what they want to do with, with the, their properties because basically they were acting like hotels. Like that, those are, that isn't the typical rental market. They're acting like hotels and now they're basically all flooding into the typical rental market, which is why we're seeing the rent soften in the Toronto area and the condo market specifically, not really the, the low rise or detached market, but in the condo market. Well, and well, let's face it, as, as you know, if you're holding one of those, you do not want to hear what I'm about to say. Say, but with a with a, a you know with a community and a population that is short on housing 
when people are struggling to afford the probably the population is benefiting from some softness in a Toronto market where somebody can get in and get more square footage for the same amount of money or they can get a cheaper place to rent. Um, so it's, it's, it's probably benefiting Toronto. And I, and I know someone listening to this is who recently bought and is not covering their costs because of some of the, the changes in some of these rents is not liking what I'm saying. But overall, it, it's, it's probably actually a good thing the, for the community. The price increases, that, like everyone, some, I shouldn't say everyone, sometimes people get so fixated on the short term, the short term, they just don't look at the long term picture. So, um, you know, there was a, an article that I'm looking at in the Stardust from, from, from a few weeks ago and their number there, they said um, half of the units downtown, um, sorry, investors who own more than half the units downtown um, and have seen prices rise 64% over the last five years. Now that that's going to vary building to building, area to area, the type of unit. But in general, it, what we're saying is that there's an incredibly strong appreciation. So for prices to come down a little bit and to kind of level off, I agree with you. Like it's not a bad thing. We, Unless you uh, bought in the last couple of years, like if you bought five or six years ago, you're still ahead of the game. But even if you bought in the last couple of years, it's... It's a again. It's a trader's mentality, right? Like this is this yeah. Is, focusing on the price isn't the sophisticated way to look at real estate for sure. It's no Absolutely. different if you bought whatever uh, um, Apple stock at a hundred bucks and it went up to a hundred and fifty in a couple of years, but then it dropped back down to a hundred and ten. Let's say like it went all the way back down to hundred ten. You're, you're still up the ten. And what's gonna what's the long term future? You know of the of the company, and that's that's the way you yeah. look at it. Like, what's the long term future of your investment still? Most anyone anyone I speak to who has any has been lucky or fortunate or hardworking enough to accumulate any sort of wealth, they never look at their wealth in terms of what it's valued at today. They look at it in what percent ownership they have in things. So in your Apple example, somebody who has some real wealth is looking at what percent ownership do they have of the outstanding Apple stock of shares. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of how they look at it. And that's a difficult thing to do because Apple could release more shares and the whole bit, but that's anyone who has any wealth. And that's a, probably a bad example. That's, who, yeah. Cause there's so a, many shares. Who has a meaningful, it. you know, but in, in a business owner, in a small business, you're looking at what percent equity you have in that business as kind of your share of wealth. No one really, I know that has assembled any amount of wealth really looks at the price today of the things they own as a reflection of how much, wealth they have in their life, how much money they have in their They're life. They're not running a weekly net worth statement based on the current market value yeah. of all yeah. their assets. And they know they have three condos in Toronto. They have a place in the States. They have a place here or they have one house in Canada and they have 100% ownership of it and they have a business that they're running and they have two partners. So they have like a percent ownership of this business and that's kind of how they look at it. So to your point on the trader mentality, that mentality just gets you nowhere and it's just not the way that to me, to look or analyze your own real estate portfolio. The way to properly look at it should be the income on the property and how, how much can we count on that income. So now we know in a pandemic, in a place like Toronto, incomes on rents, we now have data. We now know what kind of happens on rent. So what can happen on the income and how do you control your expenses? And that's the whole thing. And something else that's never discussed, I find that people in the investment community complain about, there's been a deferral on mortgage payments that people can take advantage of. And nobody seems to magically talk about this. Everybody talk, and, and, and I, I know maybe they don't want to talk about it, but I'm sure there are many investors who've taken a deferral on mortgage payments. So over the last few, and these are, I would be, I'm talking specifically now about Toronto condo investors who took a deferral on mortgage payments, but probably collected rent still. 
Let's face it. Well, look, a lot of investors were getting multiple CERB. If they qualified for CERB themselves, they could get it. Then other people that were qualifying for CERB and paying rent, they were getting the CERB money. Like the, the, that's why some people are like that whole system was broken, right? Because you're, you're giving it uh, like it, it didn't end up, it, it, the people with assets ended up getting more and more money. They benefited from the whole thing. Now we need to provide housing for people. So there, there was costs associated with that and that's how they did it. And I'm, you know, I don't have a better way. I haven't sat down and kind of thought what a better way would be, but, but that's really what's happening. So asset owners in this case, when it came to the money that the government was kind of flooding the markets with, ended up further ahead because they were getting more a larger percentage share of the money that the government was using to try to support the economy for everyone, right? So if we go back to the market, the way we the, when we pulled some numbers in, this was August. I think we pulled them last last early last month, and they were uh, the latest numbers that had been released were August. But when we looked at the August numbers. The, we saw like a 10% growth in, in the number of, of transactions for condo apartments. But then when we looked at low-rise stuff like semis and, and detached properties, and this is from the Toronto Real Estate Board, it was a 65% growth in semis and a 50% growth in detached. So that's why, so again, without and, and there wasn't supply coming on the market. So in Toronto, we've had this new supply of condos coming on the market, but now we have such a demand for these low-rise and detached Right, as the condo prices escalated closer to where the detached were, it caused this spike in demand for um, for that type of, of property, and we didn't we didn't have those types of properties. So so then when those weren't available, or the, it drove the prices up further again in Toronto, that's when we started seeing more of this kind of, or not even that's when, but it, it's kind of one of the reasons why we've seen this longer term trend of the spillover effect and people moving from the Toronto area to these other surrounding areas. And 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 for any investors out there, like the reason we look at these Toronto numbers is. Toronto is, it's its really the hub of everything here because that's kind of what everything's built around. Because if you remove the economy of Toronto, all yeah. of a sudden things change dramatically. So the impact of Toronto impacts all these other communities like what we've seen over the last number of years when there's been such a run-up in prices in the city that people have gone to these other areas outside of the Toronto area where their affordability's been higher. And that's exactly what we saw this year, like no different than, than the demand we're seeing up north in the cottage country. We're seeing it you know, on the east side of the city, west side of the city, wherever there's affordability because now people have more flexibility with work arrangements so they're taking their money and they're going elsewhere as well and you can see and as young families have children and they want more space and you can see the immigration effect i mean some people on our own team like this is very typical you come into the heart of toronto you live in toronto property you initially live with family like we have an, an example right here at rockstar of this after you live with family for a little bit you typically rent something in this particular case they were renting something in toronto and then they're able to buy something, so they go and buy. Where do they buy? They're in now one of the suburbs of Toronto. Mm -hmm. So you kind of land in Toronto, you first live with family, save up some money, then you get your own place, you rent maybe a basement apartment, something like that, save up some uh, some more money, and then you go to buy, you look around Toronto, can't buy in Toronto, you move about 45 minutes out of the city and you buy. Like this is when the when the immigration comes in here, this is kind of the evolution Then it's then driving the prices all out of the city. And there was uh, there's one other thing I just want to mention on the immigration before we go to your next point is that, you know how we always talk about 46% of the immigration comes to Toronto? And that is the, I think, recorded by Stats Canada on what people are putting down as their preferred place. And, you know, a, a Keith was telling me on, on our team here that you put down two preferred places that you want to come to. But some people land elsewhere. But we have Rockstar Inner Circle members who are immigrants to this country who land elsewhere. But then they shortly after landing, where do they come? They come to Toronto 
So, so if you include the delayed immigration population effect, we get more than 46% because I have a feeling on a net basis, more new immigrants are staying in Toronto than leaving. Right? So you got, you got the immigrants that land here that stay, and then you got the immigrants who land elsewhere who come to Toronto. And on a, on a, on, if you included that number, I wonder what is the, the immigration effect in this area. It's funny because I actually have that number. If I look it up last year, so I think this is 2019, net interprovincial migration. You know, this is really interesting. The, the components of annual net migration to Ontario, 2008-2019. So this 2000, so net immigration to Ontario last year, this is saying StatsCan uh, was 118,000. Net non-permanent residents, 81,000. You know, we were wondering before mm-hmm. if it was provincial or, or national. Here it's saying non-permanent residents, um, net migration to Ontario in 2019 was 81,186. So that's Ontario. And then interprovincial migration is, is, is uh, 11, another 12,000, 11,700. So yeah, that's, that's the component of it. So that's, what's that? That's 120, 200, it's about two, you know, just over 200, uh, well, one, yeah, it's about 200,000 people into the province last year in 2019. So that net non-permanent residents, that's Canada saying that in Ontario we're getting 81,000 non-permanent residents, which is going to be a mix of students, primarily students, and and work work visa stuff. So not only did we get in your in your twelve month from like whatever it was to uh, you know that twelve month kind of no th- this is calendar this is calendar oh that's calendar yeah, yeah, year yeah. yeah the other one I don't know why it was broken out like that I, I couldn't make sense of it but I thought it was interesting that we're seeing even though we we're seeing such a slowdown in immigration this calendar year because there was such uh, the the number was so high leading up to it that that number is actually up to the mid part of this year is actually isn't very low you know what I mean but but that's that's why I was sharing. Uh, that's why I was sharing that. But but this is calendar 2019. So what, wait, wait, wait a second here. So what trends have to break for the housing market to not continue to go up? One would be... Supply. Supply just grows to, to match what, what is required, which, is which becoming, we know from all the developers that we talk to, it's getting harder to build. Yeah, it doesn't seem no. like that's going to... So, so supply is not going to... Ca- it's not going to open up in any quick way. Yeah. Interest rates would have to go up to make it less affordable to even acquire any more property. Yeah. That's not happening anytime soon. And we'll talk more about that another time on the whole debt in the world and that whole bit. So that's not going to happen. So supply is not increasing anytime soon. Interest rates we don't believe are going up anytime soon. So then... The demand from the population growth would have to change, or and or the demand from the affordability. So, if, like you know, let's say, you know, incomes. Like, yeah, yeah. Like if incomes can't keep, so like the price finally gets to a point where a five hundred thousand dollar house now in whatever suburb is eight hundred, and you know, if people are moving out of Toronto because they can't afford eight hundred, and you know, they can't afford eight hundred there, there's going to be less buyers for that. So there'll be uh, there'll be a leveling off period there. Where until incomes can keep up from an affordability standpoint, unless there's more stimulus, lower yeah. rates, and that uh, or type of stuff changes cho- it. Or unless you chop up those houses and more people live in that same house and continues to drive demand. Yeah, except that's the, you're right, for rentals. Even for, for rentals. family homes. Well, for family homes, for new for new builds, we're already seeing it. Like the average size of the new build and the condos is shrinking every year. Like it, it's consistently been been going lower. And that's the lots have gone smaller. They've tried to put big homes on smaller lots and that type of stuff. And it's for affordability. So yeah, we're, we're already seeing that type of thing and that might continue. Until what point though can it continue? I don't know. So supply, not going to be fixed. Interest rates are not going to go up. Um, demand from new population base here, we seem freaky in this city 
where in this country and then in this city that we get just a shitload amount of immigration, well, you saw which it. is a population. So then the, the other factor to your point is then income. And, you know, will the income be able to kind of match? So you, you eventually, but then I think incomes can't match further population growth. However, more people will live in a home, rental or not rental, which will further drive demand. And then ultimately where it plateaus is where you can't stuff any more people into a metropolitan area and people just, the population can't grow anymore. Yeah, but that, that there's, uh, you know, it depends how you look at that because the, the density of Toronto versus other cities is low. It, it's, it's tiny. So I don't think it gets to that level. Like No, I, agree. So my, my point is, I, I just don't see what factor exists. And this is scary because then if you can't see it, then of course property prices are going to change tomorrow. Well, they'll be short term. Like it's got to be up and down. Like, like so, because, you, you know, it can be conceived that the way you're talking is like, well, yeah, prices are just going to keep going up. No, and I'm not trying things. to say that. I know anyone listening to this who thinks we're saying that. I am totally yeah. not saying property prices go up forever. I'm just trying to make the argument of like, when would they come down? So the, so they could come down in Canadian dollars if there's like a monetary reset, which is a whole completely different uh, conversation. Yeah, it's access to funds, supply and demand. That's the three things, right? And then there's underlying factors to those, exactly like you said. And right? none of those factors look right now to be in a situation where prices would come down. It doesn't seem that way. It doesn't really Like if someone came, if, if, if a government came along and said, okay, see this whole Greenbelt thing that we've been protecting? All right, we're going to take 25% of that and it's opening it up for development. And we're reducing the regulations in half so that you can start developing you know digging what? tomorrow. That changes things. That changes things quickly, right? And that that'll change things. But yeah, I don't know. I, Who's I, I doing can't, that? I can't see. It's political suicide. Like with all the environmental concerns now, for someone to say, "Okay, see all this beautiful green space. We're going to take it and we're going to just plow it all. We're going to destroy it and we're going to build homes." I can't see people okay. jumping on board for so that. Th so then there is another factor: access to the credit. If the banks make yeah. it so difficult because they're worried of the economic forecast that they see and they tighten up the rules well beyond what the stress test is and they just say, forget it. It's not 20% down, everybody. It's 35% down or it's 20% down and it's way harder to qualify. Our debt ratio requirements are completely different. The access to credit itself. So for the, the banking sector, because of their own fear on what they may see in the economy over the next few years, definitely could change the market. And to me, that has the highest probability that of happening. That does, 100%. Except that we know already from different people who Yeah, the fiscal to, stimulus. Well, no, then the government will come in and say, they might, I'm not saying they will for sure, but they've, they've, they've hinted in the past that they would be like, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. And they're going to try to heavy hand them to, to try to keep lending as well. So it'll be, yeah, it's it's... So basically, there, it's got the, it's got like there's some things in place like it's got legs, and I, I don't mean things are going to go straight up. I hope they don't. To be fair, I hope they don't. This whole like appreciation numbers of ten percent year over year, they're ridiculous. They're ridiculous. not good. It's not a healthy market. If things go up by five six percent every year, that's great. Everyone not only is it not only well is it ridiculous. There. I want to live in a world where my savings go up in value. That I don't want to have to depend on assets to always go up in value for my financial security of myself and my family. You keep saying that. Like, get over it. You're not in that world. It's not going to happen. No, I know. <laughs> but I, I, the it's... weird part is, I have a feeling that world's coming. Well, look, we're, we're, we're recording this the day after the U.S. presidential election. So here's what I can tell you. It doesn't matter. So there's no winner yet, right? I, I think Trump was in the lead. No, I think Biden, it was, it was Trump pulling. 30 minutes ago. Now Biden's yeah, going to Biden's pulling ahead. So who knows? <laughs> but, but irregardless of who wins, your savings are going down in value because either one of them is about to launch anywhere from two to three trillion except, dollars in stimulus. Except, trillion. Hold on. Two to three trillion. Tom, in one shot. 
even a few years ago, we thought that would be insane. Two to three trillion. They just they, you're well, just talking about what they're going to announce in January or February. Yeah, next year might be more than two or three trillion. No, but trillion. I know. But 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 what have they what have they done so far in the stimulus this year? One was was the first one one point four one point eight. No, I thought they dropped like three trillion. Was it three? I, I forget now. I forget now too. But, but, <laughs> so much. But that's hey, what I mean. What's a trillion here? Yeah. Or what's a trillion? But a few years ago, <laughs> it would seem insane. Yeah. But 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 either one of them, this whole the the financial, you know. But here's where okay. But here's where I know you're saying get get over it and we're joking around. But here's where I think. You can save and get ahead. You can choose something like gold to save in. You can choose something like Bitcoin in and your savings can go up. And I understand people will think, no, well, maybe they can't. That doesn't really work out. But I think it can because in a world where a scarce asset has a limited supply and the dollars are going to be printed by the billions and in the U.S. by the trillions, I think if you save in hard money, your savings can go up and you can live a great life. And there's this awesome opportunity that they might go up in some weird, incredible amount of value. So if you structure your life to have income properties and a savings that goes up in value and don't save in Canadian dollars, you can be structured. You could, you this could be. be the greatest opportunity ever. But it's, it, there's skill. There's still, yes, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, and that's what I'm doing as well, but there's still a level of risk involved in that, that you, cause they might not, and they might go the opposite way. Mm-hmm. Like you just never know. Do you know what I mean? There's no, there's nothing. No, no, you're right, and and you're right because for because at the same time, sorry, just that you could say diamonds, but then diamonds, there's an element of risk because of the way the market's handled with diamonds, right? It's a little bit more of a controlled market. Um, There's real estate because of replacement value. No, 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 but no, but but I I can't say all those things because certain things have a very clear stock to flow ratio over history. Like gold has a very clear stock to flow ratio. Silver has a very clear stock to flow ratio. Real estate doesn't. The amount, the amount of oil that can come on the market, the diamond market. I don't know how they could open a vault tomorrow and someone. And I heard there's man-made diamonds now. Have you heard of this? But so so basically, what I'm saying is that if if you if you use historically what is good money with a good stock to flow ratio like gold you can kind of you can play the game to your advantage you right can, now you can a little bit but interest rates would have to go up but because it's a manipulated gold. market then the, the, there's lots of things that happen behind the scenes that can suppress the price to not keep up as well as you would hope right that's that's the other thing that you have to be aware of so, there, so for I, gold for gold for bitcoin a little harder to suppress you would you would think yeah. Not even a little harder. Hard to suppress. That's hard to suppress. How do you manipulate that? Yeah, so, I mean, we, we this is a whole other discussion. We'll, we'll have a different, we'll do a different episode where we can go back and forth about Bitcoin all day long. Mm-hmm. Because I have some, I have, you know, I have some concerns over it. And I, I agree. Like, look, I'm invested in it. And I have part no, of my I'm not savings tr- I'm not in trying it. to sell you on the idea of it right now. I'm just I'm, not as uh, certain about it as you. And I, I don't think I'm as certain either. I'm just questioning it. I'm just throwing it out there, thinking out loud. Well, look, if, if I, if, you know, if you look back over the last, whatever, 10, 20 years of, of different things that governments have put in place and that are common day now, and you're just, they're just normal, they're accepted. And if you ever thought they would, they would be like that, uh, you know, if, you know, in hindsight, it's, it seems normal. But at the time, if you were forward looking to, to think that those types of things would happen or even feasible, it might seem a little bit outlandish and it might seem crazy. And I, I think without even having to know what the specific thing might be, that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. That's exactly yeah. what I'm talking when about. When you figure it out, tell me. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. look, this, 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 if, if this year isn't a perfect example of how, um, limited your freedom truly is when things when push comes to shove right when people just quickly will abide by 
by a, an announcement by someone and how limited your freedom truly is. And they're like, hey, here, you see that business that you're using to feed your family? We're can't open Closing it. it. Close it. So if that's not just yeah, a yeah, little bit of possible. a warning sign, that's that's all I'm saying. I'm like, you just never you never know. But I agree, there are some there are some difficult limitations to what they're able to do in a in a network that is not controlled by any one state. It, it changes everything. It changes it a hundred percent. So if we if we pull it back to kind of real estate and why real estate would go up or down, to me then the biggest threat on the table to real estate is the banking sector. They change the access to credit. Because supply, we, you know, we talked about supply, demand, um, interest rates, but if the banking sector changes access to credit, that's the biggest threat to the real estate market currently. Right now in, you know, what are we, November 2020. To me, that's the biggest threat. We'll see. And it'll change going forward. Yeah. You know, Canada doesn't become a place, a destination anymore. That could change things. People don't think that Canada, you know, uh, is a place where you want to leave, leave your country sure, to come to. That could change things. But currently, if I had to pick my number one threat on the real estate market, it would be the banking. And you know, we did a YouTube video. That's remember the one that changed the quickest, quickest. 100%. And you know what? We did a YouTube video on this right when COVID hit. And I remember we were, you know, because we were getting a lot of questions on like, is there blood in the streets? What's going on with the real estate market? And we did this YouTube video that outlined a lot of some similar things with less detail because we didn't know what was going to happen to incomes that has happened over the last six months. But we kind of concluded the same thing. At the end of that video, we talk about the biggest threat is ultimately going to be what the banks do. And that we know, to your point, that the banking, the government will then respond to the banks and likely force them to lend. But our current biggest threat in this area is the banks. Mm -hmm. and that's that's what I would kind of boil it down to. And I think we're still at that point. That's still the biggest threat. That's the quickest threat. one, That's for the sure. quickest one that could yeah. change the market almost overnight. Yeah, anything that's government regulated as well. Like, you just never know what, what they're going to do. You yeah, know, and on anything. the flip side, can you imagine the government says to the banks, say, hey, 100-year amortizations, go. <laughs> oh my god then just, just, oh my. just but wouldn't that be a way to get inflation going through immediately like, go buy anything you can yeah. because the demand will skyrocket and that's yeah. the freaky part about how it's uh, the access to credit and the control of credit dictates yeah, the real estate market 100% because if they announce how many hundred year amortizations go well no one cares what the price they're paying anymore everyone can, can, cares about the monthly payment I mean, that's the reality of it. You know what I mean? And I shouldn't say no one, but the large majority, our society is structured in a way that the monthly payment has become more important or more um, of a decision-making factor to people than the actual final price. That's kind of the way totally. things look. Of course, right? yes. Um, as far as the rental market, though, we're, we're, there, there was a report released. They studied the rental market over a period of time, and it was released in uh, uh, just recently, but it studied the rental market up until... Who's the, this, some Toronto organization? It was Urbanation, their rent, rental market study. I think it was like FRPO or something, and, and Urbanation released it. And it was, uh, they studied the rental market till the mid-2019, then they re-supported, re it was mid-2020. But basically what they said is that, in in this, I have the quote here, so the rental housing supply gap in Ontario has grown, has quickly grown to a level that is twice as high as originally projected a few years ago. So the rental market supply gap is twice as high as a few years ago. And it, and it, said, was, it was only a couple of years ago that everyone again was calling the doom of all of these different yeah. markets. So that, that was the, the forecasting was that off? Well, look, it said net migrate, it said uh, factors such as asset economic growth and much stronger than anticipated increases in the population pushed the demand for rental housing. Why does everybody miss year? the population story in this area? I, don't know. I feel I like, laughing. have we not been screaming about yeah. this? For, I feel like since the top, I feel like we have to go on the top of the building and scream about this. People are missing the population story yeah. in this area. Look, net migration to Ontario has been particularly large contributor to uh, <laughs> having reached over 200,000 persons, which we just described. 
um, in each of the past two years, doubling the annual average recorded during the preceding five-year period. And what changed in that is these non-permanent residents, No, that's what no one was accounting for. They were looking at the immigration numbers from the government that they were saying that they were going to let these people in, but there was no number saying, here's how many non-permanent residents we're going to allow into the country. And when the state changed the, the laws in 2014, I think it took, it, it, it impacted, it, it, maybe it came into effect 2014, and then by the time people went through the system, it was 2015. That's when we saw these numbers start kind of creeping up, creeping up, and then they just jumped. And, and, and that's what's changed this. And that's what everyone kind of missed with this. So the supply, the rental supply gap is still really big. And one of the quotes here they had is estimated that Ontario will be underbuilding new rental housing by a magnitude of over 20,000 units per year during the period to 2031. So that's where you're talking, you know, when you mentioned like people are going to be living, splitting up the homes and that's the opportunity for investors now. And that's why we're seeing in these different areas, um, laneway housings now become allowed and, and um, coach houses are, you know, they're looking for more and more ways. Second Suites was, was the first thing that they, they announced. I wish I remember when that was. I think it was seven or eight years ago, seven, six, seven years ago now the, 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 when they mandated that all the municipalities came out with these rules to, to allow for um, second suites. But that was the first step. And now they're like, wow, you know, that's still not giving us the number we need. We're underbuilding. Okay, guys, here's what else we're going to allow. And they're allowing all these future things. So people now, you know, if you had one property now, you might be able to break it not into two units with a second suite. You might be able to put a third suite in a nanny house or, or one of the, you know, quote unquote, tiny houses on the lot someplace in the backyard. And now that lot isn't for one family. It's for three or three living units, right? So that's that changes things all of a sudden in, in so, the density and what people are paying for on a regular basis. So the ownership of these properties and of the land, because if there's more people going to be on the land, that land becomes even more valuable. And then it, it, price, it, it pushes those prices up as well. So in the last 10 years, if, if pretty much everywhere around the GTA and Golden Horseshoe has doubled in price. Many places have more than doubled. Many places have more than doubled. There's some places that haven't more than doubled, right? Some pockets of Oakville, if you had 10 years ago a house that was a million, it's not quite worth two million. Actually, most of them are kind of doubled. In my, you know, in 2017, the houses on my street went up, I think they were like 40, they went up like 45% in, in about, in like, three months and then they came back down because yeah, 2017 yeah, yeah. was, was insane psycho. but i was like this is not normal at but so all. so if, if in the last 10 years with the amount of growth in debt and the amount of reduction in interest rates property prices have doubled if in the next 10 years we're anticipating more growth in debt and continued low rates and maybe even lower does that mean the house that's in hamilton ontario that is six hundred thousand today is 1.2 million at the end of the next 10 years? Because think about this. The U.S. debt right now, it's what, 24 trillion? Don't hold me to that. Well, well, 23, 24 trillion, whatever it is now. And it's when you and I started this business, it was at like 8 trillion. I remember it was $8 trillion right before 2010, like 2008-ish, 2007-ish. It was like 8 trillion. And I remember in 2010, we're like, wow, if this pace keeps up with all this QE stuff, it's going to be like 16 trillion. And like by the year 2016, 17, 18, kind of the end of Obama's term, it's going to be about this much. And now it's at 24 trillion. And does that mean over the next 10 years, it's going to go from 24 trillion in the U.S to about $48 trillion. And if that happens, that amount of debt comes into the system. That's a new flush of money into the US. Canada's gonna have to match because we wanna keep our dollar cheaper than the US dollar. So if the US aggressively does that, does the Canadian dollar match? And then what the heck happens to property prices? 
And if incomes, which have been depressed over the last 25, 35 years, don't keep up, what are we looking at? Like, this is psycho. Yeah. I, I just don't know how that debt is serviced at that level. Because I know we've looked in the past and we've seen that as prices, like like we're seeing the trends now already, you know, the a larger percentage of people's income is going towards housing, whether it's rent or mortgage payment, whatever it is, and less of their income is going towards discretionary spending. So like entertainment, um, like clothes, they, sometimes it's the replacing more expensive goods for cheaper goods with as far as even groceries and things like that. But just at what level does that end up, you know, without wage increases, what level does that become unsustainable because they can't then sustain the, the prices the of price. those things? So, so I, just got, I think it gets to a point, I think it continues to increase, but the pace at which it increases has to, has to slow, slow down. Like no, it can't, logic, you know, okay, it doesn't look, make sense. In, in this mortgage calculator, just because I had it up, I've never done this before. I just put in 0.5% as the mortgage rate. Because I, I never actually thought to put that yeah, in Yeah, where does it go to? So it goes from 19, so it, at 3.2%, at, at a $480,000 mortgage was 2,300 bucks. Then at 1.7%, which is what I put in, it was 1,963 bucks. And then at 0.5%, it goes to 1,700 bucks. So property prices can go up. Yeah, well, based on what what happened when they went from 3.2 to point. Well, to where we are today, let's, let's say, what yeah, they if can I do go point up, one. Up wait, wait, on that mortgage, if I do point one percent of a, of an interest, which is just so ridiculous, but the mortgage goes to sixteen twenty. Yeah, see, and that's you know that's a perfect example of how when you were talking about savings, how your savings gets wiped out because when the government does that, changes the something like that, all they need to do is change the interest rate, and then when that imp and it's not just is like if you look at what's happened even to stock markets because all this extra money and this easy money floods into any financial assets, and so what's happened to. I mean, basically the stock markets are made up of, what is it, five or six big stocks mm -hmm. right now. But, you know, it floods into kind of those types of things. And then your savings buy less and you're kind of left, you know, you're, you're, you, if you have 100,000 bucks in the bank. You're left you, to forcing you, to buy Bitcoin. You know, early you, on. You brought the conversation back to Bitcoin, Well, yeah, but early on you could buy 25% of a, assuming this, how the, the house, was, let's say the price was 430 instead of the mortgage. If 100 grand in the bank, you can buy about 25% of the house. If that, if those numbers, if the interest rates go down, which causes the demand to spike and the prices to push up, your now hundred thousand dollars is, you know, is no longer worth that. We were talking about something. Um, sorry, we can no longer buy twenty five percent of the house, and I forget what we were talking about the other day. But we said if you had, I think when we were talking to Mike, said if you had in your savings account, you had your 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 number. So let's say it was a hundred thousand bucks, and then beside it, you had a picture of a basket of goods of what it would buy. And then every month or every quarter, that basket of goods changed. So no longer could it could buy, buy two cars and, uh, you know, whatever, you know, whatever else made that up. It can only buy one and a half cars and the same stuff. And you saw that shrinking and shrinking. Then it becomes very real, right? Very real, very That's quickly. nice that you have a picture of a basket of goods that's going up in price. I have a picture in mind of a thief who comes into my bank account and steals 2% of my money, more than that, every year. Well, you can animate it so that when you look in, the thief comes <laughs> and takes thief. a little part okay. out, right? Okay. So that would be good, a good... The basket of goods, but the thief is basically... Because when I read the Bank of Canada statement that it's like, you know, our target is 2% inflation every year, my interpretation of that sentence is you are stealing... 2% of my yeah. money and you are putting it in plain English that and is, it freaks me out. Yeah. That I, Sometimes I feel like, is no one else feel like they're freaking out? But in, 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 in the defense of the population of Canada, all of us are so busy earning a living, paying our rent, paying our mortgage, paying our car payments, you don't really have time to look at this stuff and it just kind of slips yeah. in there. 
we should start a bank with that as a as one of the features that you can do that. Well, you know, you, you know, your savings account and the little and thief comes thief in who takes the money. It'll be a very unsuccessful a, bank though because because they'll because they'll <laughs> they, no one's going to keep money there because no. like it just seems no, like it's but it's a joke. You yeah. might put ten bucks in there just to see what happens. You can have two. No, you can have two line items: one for the amount of money, and then one for the purchasing power of it. And yeah. then that one, the purchasing power one of it, is where the the, the thief steals the money. So, so then you can still have access. The tagline to your own money. of the Bank of Canada should be: We're the Bank of Canada. We are thieves. <laughs> We are thieves. Could you imagine? We steal your labor and your time. <laughs> That'd and, be great. Hey, and we do it consistently every day, but we yeah. just do it at this level where it's really not noticeable. Yeah. But compounded over your lifetime, ooh, boy, we're going to get you good. And somehow we've convinced everyone <laughs> that it's actually okay because they openly speak about doing yeah, it. Everyone's yeah. like, yeah, everyone, good, good yeah, job. Inflation's good. Good, it's, good you know, job. 2%, try to keep it stable. Keep our prices stable at 2%. Thank you, Bank of Canada. I really appreciate that. Okay, we got way off topic. I don't know if there was anything else to talk about on the... On the, on the local market stuff. I don't know. I think I mean, the biggest if, thing is the spillover effect isn't just happening to Toronto, which we've noticed, right? Because oh, you talk right. about this, is that we are seeing in communities around the Golden Horseshoe that, you know, Nick, in London, Ontario, we're seeing a spillover in demand into St. Thomas. In, in Hamilton, we're seeing the spillover to Brantford, which we've seen for years, but now it's going out to Woodstock. Yeah. We're seeing St. Th- uh, Catharines spillover into Welland. Well, look, Markham used to be you know, this, this area where people went to out of Toronto and then, and then it became more like Durham region and people would live along the 401 in the Durham region. And then now you're seeing more and more growth further north in the Durham region, closer to the 407, right? Places like Brooklyn, Ontario, you know, which were, weren't on the map before more and more people are moving there is because of the spillover effect from those other areas that a bunch of people have jumped into. So yeah, you're seeing all these little pockets, they, the same type of thing happen in all these, these, these different areas and um yeah i don't know it'll be interesting it'll continue because it's just gonna uh, with, 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 the, with the way things we're just gonna get denser year. we're just gonna get denser in our population base here and people have a little more like freedom I, you know this i don't think work from home is going to be full-time for every company all the time i don't you know i i i'm the of the belief that people are going back into the office but there's going to be more flexibility and i think that's going to kind of expand that a little bit a little bit further but we have with the the immigration or the per, projected population growth coming into this area the people leaving the Toronto area going into those areas and causing that there's people coming into backfill those backfill. people in Toronto and we're in a little low that's why I think provided, Toronto right now might be an opportunity and I don't know if we've ever said that before it might be a weird like it'll be very interesting to reflect back on this three or four years and go wow geez was there this window of opportunity in the Toronto market specifically in the condo market maybe I'm wrong because maybe the workplace doesn't come back but with this much immigration coming in I don't know. I feel like this is weird. This could be, and I mean, who's going to call that? None of us know. No. And and it's why to go back to our fundamentals, you always look at the income. You always look at the expenses. You never bank on appreciation. You analyze the cash flow that you can earn on a property to determine if that's the right move for you. And if you can take something that just breaks even, great. If you just are in love with something and you can afford to take a negative $100, $200, $300 a month in cash flow, fine, so be it, but be aware of it. 100%. But, but ideally, to survive the ups and downs of the real estate market, you better have some positive cash flowing properties in your portfolio to cover up any of the break evens or negatives, right? Because we've known through our family history the hard way that if you just have negatives, negatives suck. <laughs> <laughs> so well, you uh, can't even build a portfolio. It limits you, you in so many yeah. ways, right? Yeah. So you got to get beyond that for sure. Anything else? Do we want to share? Nope, that's I think it. That's it. Thanks, everyone.
Hey everyone, so hopefully you enjoyed that episode with Nick and I. Remember, we're going to come out with a, a global macroeconomic update shortly. Stay tuned for that. If you're thinking you want to become a Rockstar Inner Circle member, you can go to rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash podcast. If you use the code YLYT at the checkout, you get a big juicy discount. That's YLYT at the checkout. You get a big juicy discount when you join up as a member. That's it for now. Until next time, your life, your terms.